Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired September 25th, 2018, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Remember that quote from Mr. Rogers, to look for the helpers when tragedy strikes? Today, where we live, we consider who's helping the helpers. Humanitarian aid workers, the paramedics, the police are among those who witness traumatic events as part of their jobs. In a few moments, we'll learn about the kind of trauma they can endure. Coming up, we'll hear from Michael Kehoe, who was police chief in Newtown the day 20 children and six educators were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Kehoe, now retired, says more needs to be done to connect first responders to mental health services. And later, Bruce Shapiro will join us. Shapiro is executive director of Columbia University's DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. He'll talk about what journalists encounter covering tragic events and the responsible ways media should report on trauma in their communities. Now, does your line of work involve helping others who face trauma? How do you balance your responsibilities with your personal health? We want to hear from you this hour as well. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to uh, welcome the first guest into the studio. Megan Berthold is associate professor at UConn's School of Social Work, Dr. Megan Berthold. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, we were uh, talking about uh, how we were going to frame this show uh, a few days ago, and part of uh, learning about trauma is that term that the public has become more aware of in the past few years, and that's uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD because of uh, consequences of, of the wars that we're involved in and the veterans who are coming home, uh, also with uh, a focus on refugee populations fleeing conflict, uh, especially natural disasters we may have here at home. Home and the fact that uh, their lives are changed when they go back and maybe their homes aren't there anymore. So these are all different levels of trauma. But I wanted to ask you to first describe for us exactly what post-traumatic stress disorder is, Megan. Post-traumatic stress disorder is one of the more commonly experienced uh, reactions to experiencing significant trauma um, of the wide variety of types that you've just described. Um, there are characteristic clusters of symptoms um, that people with this condition experience. The first has to do with re-experiencing the trauma. This may emerge in um, intrusive traumatic memories, uh, nightmares, uh, physiological or emotional reactions when something reminds someone of the trauma. There are other uh, clusters of symptoms as well. Uh, one of the hallmarks in many cultures is avoidance, avoidance of reminders of, of the original trauma, avoidance of um, talking about what happened to a person. Um, there are also um, uh, symptoms of arousal, such as difficulty sleeping, increased irritability, startle reaction, for example. Um, the concept has really evolved over the years, and a couple of years ago there was a big change we were recognized also uh, negative cognitions um, and emotions that are uh, 
uh, typical with individuals who've experienced trauma, such as um, uh, blaming oneself uh, for what has happened. And uh, there are also subtypes of PTSD that has to do with significant symptoms of dissociation. Um, not present for everyone, but particularly we see this with individuals who have experienced repeated chronic trauma, such as in the case of uh, being in combat in war, experiencing repeated domestic violence or child abuse. You mentioned that uh, there's been an evolution. So when we think about how uh, clinicians, I guess, uh, diagnose uh, these symptoms, um, how far back uh, does that go? I think about when we think about post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, there's the term soldier's heart uh, that was given to uh, Civil War, uh, people who served in the Civil War. And so I'm just curious, like, how it's, uh, I guess, evolved and how clinicians uh, went about diagnosing it. Yes. Well, I think the phenomenon has existed for uh, since since uh, our entire history. Um, in addition to what you mentioned, there was also the concept of shell shock um, that was uh, really um, used during the World War I time. The, the concept and diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, was not developed until 1980 after our own um, veterans, U.S. combat veterans in Vietnam, had returned from Vietnam and were experiencing these very classic uh, symptoms that I described earlier. And then when in, in your line of work did psychologists start thinking about the trauma that the people who are helping trauma victims are also experiencing, whether by association or even witnessing uh, traumatic events in the course of doing their line of work to help? The concept of vicarious trauma, which is also often referred to as secondary trauma, was not developed until 1990. This was after I had already become a social worker and already had experienced some of the symptoms of vicarious trauma. But earlier in uh, 1982, Charles Figley, a psychologist, um, who has done a lot of work with trauma survivors and natural disasters in particular, had developed the concept of compassion fatigue, uh, which really at that time was a recognition that uh, helpers, psychologists, um, it was really more confined to the clinical world at this time, therapists, social workers, who were working long-term with individuals who had experienced uh, severe stress and trauma, uh, may become exhausted and depleted. Uh, but in 1990, there was, uh, right here in Connecticut, uh, Laurie Ann Perlman, um, Karen Sack-Vitney, and Lisa McCann at the Traumatic Stress Institute developed the con concept of vicarious trauma, whereby uh, clinicians, and they were focused on clinicians and therapists at the time, clinicians who were working with individuals, families, or communities who had experienced significant trauma, even if the clinician had not uh, had a particularly traumatic life themselves or had experienced anything similar at all to what their clients or communities had gone through, may begin to develop some of the same symptoms of post-traumatic stress that their clients were experiencing. Um, sometimes this could manifest uh, in more ubiquitous ways, such as being um, feeling overly tired, beginning to withdraw from family or friends, um, no longer um, engaging in um, activities that one used to enjoy or exercise. But it also, uh, they uh, recognized, 
could um, be the development of PTSD symptoms in the therapist themselves. This happened to me, as I said, uh, uh, several years prior when I was a brand new uh, social worker, MSW, Mm -hmm. working in a um, first asylum camp for Vietnamese uh, refugees who were fleeing by boat from Vietnam. And I was working with uh, many individuals who had experienced extremely traumatic uh, boat escapes where people were dying, um, where they lost their loved ones. And um, I, believe it or not, was the, uh, had the most mental health training of anyone on this relatively small island where I was without proper supervision. Um, and I began to not sleep well. I began to have nightmares. And then I realized these were not my own nightmares. These were vivid nightmares depicting the traumas that my clients had gone through. And so in hindsight, I consider that to be a real blessing. Um, I couldn't uh, pretend that it wasn't happening to me. It was so blatant. Um, and it, I was left exhausted, and it was really disrupting my functioning. So I... Um, knew um, that I had to do something about it. And I'm very pleased to say that I was able to uh, develop some strategies to help and the nightmares uh, went away. Hmm. Now, this is something that you took upon yourself, but now that you train social workers uh, at uh, UConn School of Social Work, um, now that uh, clinicians have, I guess, addressed that this can happen to uh, certain people in lines of work, this vicarious trauma. So what are ways uh, that uh, people in this line of work can deal with uh, what they're um, experiencing because they're helping uh, people that have been exposed to trauma? Right. There are several things that I'd like to share about that. Some are strategies uh, to deal with these symptoms of distress and and, um, vicarious trauma. Uh, But I also would like to mention um, another incredibly important concept of vicarious resilience, which I think is part of the the plan of being able to prepare and take care of oneself. And um, I hope we may have time to also talk about things that organizations can do to help support the well-being of their uh, their teams. So in terms of vicarious trauma, it's really um, uh, ultimately uh, should be an individualized plan. Um, we all bring uh, so much of ourselves to our work. Sometimes that also involves having experienced um, uh, one's own trauma. Um, I do the train uh, not just social workers, but other health, mental health professionals, uh, interpreters, lawyers, judges, um, uh, emergency responders um, in in this work. And so Uh, People are particularly at risk if they've experienced their own trauma, especially if it's um, similar. Um, So some of the common strategies that people use will be um, finding peer support. Um, I know that was so deeply valuable to me. One of my specialty areas is working with survivors of state-sponsored torture. I work with refugees and asylum seekers for a long time. Um, and so finding other seasoned clinicians, my peers in my office, my um, colleagues around the country and internationally who do that work, who understand some of what we're grappling with, that's really helped. Many people also will develop um, uh, physical exercise routines, tending to the basics, getting enough sleep, um, eating health- healthfully. 
Um, my biggest strategy, and increasingly more and more people, are using skills of mindfulness. Um, what I have found, uh, I had begun to study um, meditation, and then I found that uh, without realizing I was doing it, I naturally began to bring that into my work. So as I would do uh, very detailed forensic evaluations of um, torture survivors in the context of their asylum applications, where I needed to remain professional, remain calm, be able to hear the details of how they were tortured by another human being or human beings. Um, I found that the skills of mindfulness and meditation were extremely valuable. Learning to regulate my breath so that I could remain calm and that it helped me to think more clearly um, so that I could not cut off the torture survivor I was working with, but also tracking what was going on physiologically inside my body. Was I beginning to, um, uh, my heart beginning to race? Was I beginning to feel nauseous? Helped me to bring awareness to that um, as a reaction, as a vicarious reaction to the stories of torture and the enormous um, emotional distress that was exhibited in front of me. Um, <clears throat> while still being able to remain calm and professional and attend to the needs. I teach that to people that I work with. You're hearing Megan Berthold, Associate Professor at UConn School of Social Work here on Where We Live, as we learn more about vicarious or secondary trauma experienced in certain professions. Uh, Megan's a social worker. Coming up, we're going to be talking about uh, the impact on first responders as well as uh, journalists uh, covering uh, trauma in their communities. Uh, you mentioned something, Megan, that you have done training uh, for uh, people in many different lines of work, including lawyers and judges. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, um, Many lawyers um, work with individuals and uh, who have experienced intense trauma. The very, for most people, um, going through a lawsuit, having to uh, tell a, a lot of details about um, uh, traumatic experiences in their life is is quite difficult. What I've learned from the numerous lawyers I've worked with um, over the years is that um, they often aren't trained on how to elicit information that they need in order to best represent their clients um, about the trauma experiences, as well as how to ask questions and help to prepare those individuals. So. Um, uh, what I've learned from some judges, uh, immigration judges who have talked to me about this as well, is that sometimes they feel un, uh, they feel unprepared to hear testimony about uh, some of, in the case of asylum, some of the qualifying persecution, some of the uh, details of uh, the traumas that happened to the applicant. Uh, because it's too distressing for them. Um, and so um, in that training, I help, I help these lawyers and um, asylum officers who I've also trained to be aware of how their reactions are manifesting in, in, in themselves, how it may be affecting their work, including um, avoiding certain lines of questioning that really are quite pertinent to the matter at hand uh, because of the uh, uh, distress that that elicits in them. And also to learn strategies of how to interview very traumatized individuals so that person can share what they need to share. 
um, and develop for themselves a, a plan to take care of themselves um, so that they can, um, if they so choose, continue to do their important line of work. And that's important to receive that type of training uh, and uh, treatment because uh, their people's lives are at stake and right. the, 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 the type of work that these attorneys and judges are doing. And without acknowledging that um, that this may be difficult or if they need support, that can uh, impact the job they're doing. Definitely. This is where we live. Uh, we want to hear from you as we talk about uh, secondary trauma, also known as vicarious trauma. Uh, maybe you're in a line of work where uh, you're helping others who've experienced trauma uh, and you don't quite know uh, how to reconcile that with uh, your personal life and your personal well-being. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from Newtown's retired police chief, and we want to take your calls, too. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired September 25th, 2018, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning about vicarious trauma or secondary trauma that certain people face because of the types of jobs they hold, jobs like humanitarian aid workers and even journalists. Coming up, we'll hear from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. But right now, we're turning our attention to the ways trauma can impact the jobs of first responders. Michael Kehoe knows about this firsthand. He was the police chief in the town of Newtown uh, when 20 children and six educators were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. Uh, he's since retired in 2016, but he continues to talk about the importance of connecting law enforcement to mental health services. Michael Kehoe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Michael, we all know what happened that day uh, in Newtown. If you could talk more about uh, when that call came in, how big your department was at the time, and was it literally all hands on deck? Yes, it was all hands on deck uh, on that day. Uh, and uh, that's a typical, you know, untypical call for a very untypical response for all hands on deck, but occasionally we'll do that. So, you know, that, that day was a, we had probably 12 to 13 officers available uh, to respond. Our force is 45 strong, but we also know we have mutual aid from surrounding uh, communities and the state police. So we, we knew that we can count on them to uh, help us respond. Mm. Uh, do you remember um, that first week and the fact of going through the motions, uh, working you know, around the clock? I mean, how, how did that, that particular day impact your job that week and the weeks and months uh, after? Yeah, it was very stressful. Um, you know, typically police officers respond to an event. Uh, they, they clean it up, they pick it up, they do what they need to do, investigate, uh, and then you move on to the next call. Uh, in this particular case, this seemed to last for a very long period of time, creating a, a additional stresses and tension, uh, not only within our agency, within the community. So th the attention and spotlight that was present uh, lasted for a very long time, which was unusual for us. And that was a new phenomenon we had to learn to deal with and understand. You were the police chief, so you're in a leadership position. People are looking at you uh, for leadership. They're depending on you. Uh, maybe. How did you uh, see, uh, did you feel additional pressures, and how did you handle that? Well, it wasn't easy uh, because, you know, you have a job to do, and, and you, you and if any, I mean, police officers and, and others take their job very seriously, no matter what you're doing. 
and you want to do the right thing. You want to do the most professional uh, work possible, and you want to give service to the community. Uh, but there's you know hundreds of things you you need to accomplish during that period of time, and you wonder whether or not you can accomplish it all. So you feel you feel a lot of stress and tension to do that. You know, for us, we were lucky to have all kinds of mutual aid help. We had uh, you know many many um, helpers from across the country come into our community to assist us in a variety of different uh, parts of our parts of our work. Up until that moment, uh, this uh, term vicarious trauma or secondary trauma, was that something that you were aware of or your police officers, had they received any type of training? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. I think they have. I mean, police officers are trained at the academy. Will that training help them, let's say, maneuver through an incident like this, uh, sometimes it won't. Yeah, we again, we see a lot of trauma in our in our, um, in our careers. This was one of those very unique traumas that I think even the most veteran officer, including yours truly, just kind of were shocked at. If you could predict what you would face in your career coming into the job, you would probably not have predicted this particular kind of incident. You could predict a lot of things that you'll say, but not this kind of incident. So it's a shocking. It's shocking initially to try to say, okay, now I've got to deal with this. First of all, you have to feel shocked that you're, uh, you have faced this. Now it's going to be even longer term than you had expected and predicted. Uh, you mentioned that you and your other officers had a job to do, but at what point did it become clear to you that uh, the people that worked uh, for you needed additional support, that they needed to talk to a therapist or a counselor? Almost immediately. You just knew that they would need to do that. We had EAP specialists on site immediately speaking with them afterwards. Uh, you kind of recognize that uh, this was an extraordinary event uh, for your agency, for your, your personnel. And, you know, that's it's talking about sworn personnel and also civilian personnel. I don't want to forget about them because they're so important, too. They're feeling the effects of many, many things that are going on. So you just knew that it was gonna have to, you're gonna have to come up with a strategy uh, that would uh, address all those issues that would not only come in the short term, but in the long term. This is where we live. Today we're learning about uh, secondary or vicarious trauma. Again, this is a trauma that uh, people in certain lines of work experience because they're helping others who are also experiencing trauma in their lives. In studio with me, Michael Kehoe. He's the retired police chief of the Newtown Police Department. Also, Megan Berthold, associate professor at UConn School of so- Social Work. You can join our conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Is there a particular, um, Michael, when we think about a uh, law enforcement, uh, a different culture where is it easy to ask for help? Because we know in this conversation we're having in our country in recent years about access to mental health and we talk about stigma. How is How easy is it, though, to ask for help when you are working in law, law enforcement? It's difficult because the stigma is there and the culture is there. And there's culture in every, every segment of our society and, and certainly professions that are out there. One of the unique p- problems that we have in, in law enforcement is we, we certainly have lots of authority and privileges, and we carry a gun. So if you were to just just off the top of your head say, gee, what about a, a person who's thinking about, you know, uh, who's depressed? Would you like to have that person have a gun in their possession or nearby? You probably would not. So if you have a police officer who's somewhat depressed and he admits to it, what would then happen? So that kind of brings in this that dilemma 
of what do we do now with our officers who may have felt some trauma, uh, may have felt uh, may sad about a, a particular event they had to ca- they had to handle. Uh, what are we going to do with them going forward? Uh, are we going to keep them on the job? Because we know a distracted officer is, is an officer safety issue. So we want our officers to be as clear and crisp in your thinking as possible every day because you can't determine what day is going to happen. If you're having a, you know, you're having a B or C day then you, and you have a significant event, you want them to be at their best. So that's the dilemma we face uh, of, and the strategy we have to put in place to address those. Uh, Megan Berthold is also here, Assistant Associate Professor at UConn School of Social Work. Megan, you've done training uh, about vicarious trauma and resiliency with different uh, professions, including law enforcement. Um, what would you like to add to this conversation when you hear how Michael was talking about dealing with the aftermath of this very tragic event and also concerned about uh, the men and women that work for him? One of the things that I'm very impressed by is that as the leader of um, of his team, he had that awareness um, and also the commitment to ensure the well-being. And one of the things that I think is so important for organizations and, and professions throughout our society is to recognize, as uh, uh, Michael has, that these reactions are normal. Um, it's to be expected, as he put it, when this is a really extraordinary uh, event, the incidents at, at, at Newtown that he and his team were tasked with responding to. And so I think it, it really takes that kind of um, understanding and awareness and leadership within law enforcement and other professions in order to have a chance um, to try to uh, support and get the assistance that the team members need. And so that really impresses me. Uh, Michael, what about the impact on your family? We, we know that your wife has uh, uh, spoken or at least written about uh, the impact on her and yourself after uh, the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. How did it impact your marriage? Family is so important. We know that they're, you know, they're right in there with the, the first responders. Uh, they feel the same things that the first responders do. And they want to be supportive of those first responders, and they, they could have that vicarious trauma symptoms just as easy. So I think it's really, really important to to address that, too, as part of your strategy moving forward, and not only in, in extraordinary events, but certainly in the, in the daily lives of a police officer, because it is a stressful job at times, and um, sometimes you don't get relief that you would like to get. Mm-hmm. So did it impact uh, how you communicated and... Um yeah, uh, yeah. Personally, yeah, certainly. Uh, my wife is a very strong person. She's in the medical profession, so she under kind of she kind of understood what maybe what I was going through. She was very you know cognizant of, of my emotions, uh, the sleep patterns, some of the things that Megan had already talked about. Recognizing that uh, I was experiencing some of those, so she was you know giving me the you know uh, the the eye about, you know, you better get some help yourself. And I had a lot of my colleagues say the same thing. So, you know, you need to get your help. You know, don't don't be feel as though you have to take this burden on by yourself. So I was getting a lot of support and push from them to do the right thing for myself. And I think that was very, 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 very appreciative. 
Um, we, Megan, we started the conversation uh, talking about the different levels of trauma. We're focusing in on the secondary trauma that can be experienced. But when we talk about family members, uh, people in our lives who are, um, you know, also responding to uh, the person that they love and seeing the stress and, and anxiety, possibly depression, what what kind of tr- what kind of uh, level of trauma would uh, someone's a spouse or a family member be experiencing? How do you categorize that? That could also fall under this uh, concept of secondary or vicarious trauma. I think it's very important to recognize that um, uh, first responders, clinicians, all of the types of professions that we've been talking about, often and certainly in the, the case of first responders in Newtown, it wasn't just vicarious trauma. It was also experiencing a primary trauma um, th- themselves in the responding to this mass shooting. One of the things that I think can be very helpful for loved ones and for the person themselves are the ABCs of vicarious trauma, which Lorianne Perlman and her colleagues um, um, uh, speak to us about. A, awareness, right? Awareness for the person going through it, the leader, but also for the family member. Um, Balance, B, balance. Being able to find and carve out some balance between the professional life and the family life, for example, even and I know that this is perhaps impossible during the uh, immediate time of responding to an urgent crisis, but it, as soon as possible to be able to return to that kind of balance and see connection reinforcing and strengthening connections within one's unit but also within one's family. Mm. This is where we live. Again, Megan Berthold, Associate Professor at UConn School of Social Work. And Michael Kehoe is here, uh, retired police chief of the Newtown Police Department. Michael, I mentioned you retired in, retired in 2016. And you know some people would uh, maybe feel comfortable uh, putting this chapter behind them and focusing on something new. But you've made a point to talk about the importance of connecting law enforcement and other first responders to mental health services. Tell me how you've been working on that, including uh, working with the DOJ and the National Alliance on Mental Health? Yes, uh, very, very important stuff. Uh, I think our leadership uh, across, the, across the country is, is, is recognizing that this is an uh, area where we need to improve, not only in our, in our selection of police officers, but in our training and ongoing training, because our aim here is to have a healthy, productive police officer throughout their career and beyond. And we have to think about beyond that, too, because we don't want, you know, any any tragedies to befall somebody who served in, uh, served in their community for 30, 40 years. Uh, and sometimes that happens because you're so entrenched in what you're doing, you're not thinking about, you know, your future and, and what you're going to be doing. So uh, that conversation has gone on at, at various national levels, and, and the National Association of Mental Illness was a big part of uh, putting together a, a group of people who were looking at this uh, specifically with the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And uh, we kind of said, what can we do? Uh, what can uh, we do as leadership to move this needle because it's going to be moving the needle. It's going to be changing policies. It's going to be training practices. It's going to be integrating our mental health professionals right into our agencies. 
very unusual to have that happen because we sometimes we typically don't talk as often as we should and we, sh- we should be talking more often. We should have a, a relationship with them. But that was part of it. And some of our larger agencies are actually doing that. Uh, some of the agencies that maybe have a two or 3,000, you know, men and women who sworn or even higher than that have those have those services available right within their, their, their agency, uh, their police department or in, a, in another area. So I think that's the conversation that's going on. And I think that's, that's it's going to bode well for the, our profession. You mentioned larger organizations can do this, but when we're talking about uh, the 169 towns, cities, hamlets in the state of Connecticut, mm-hmm. which all have their own individual budgets, and are there barriers to what you're talking about, like having that uh, that mental health uh, clinician or some kind of therapist or counselor within the ranks so that there is that level of trust? Right. Fortunately, the Connecticut Chiefs Police Association is recognized that too. Uh, they're an arm of the uh, IACP, so they are doing what they can do to, you know, as a as, as small groups of, of of chiefs and 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 regional chiefs to say what can we do regionally? Because you know, again, we have a lot of small agencies in our in our state. Uh, so the resources may not be there for all of this. So I think we're trying to we're trying to tra- uh, attack it from that perspective, and it's I think it's working well. We've got you know a subcommittee that just sits on sits and talks about that, and you know the training that can be brought to bear, the monies that, and the resources that can be brought to bear on this very important subject matter. This topic has also come up before the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, My next guest has tried to actually get uh, the state legislature and a bill passed to provide uh, better mental health treatment for first responders. I want to welcome into the conversation State Senator Kathy Austin, uh, who uh, serves the town of Sprague. Uh, Senator Austin, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, We know that for several years now, there's been a a bill before the legislature that would uh, help with uh, treatment and response for first responders uh, dealing with post-traumatic stress. Can you talk about um, some of the bills that you've worked on and what you would hope to change? The bills that I've been working on for the last five years uh, have been uh, put through both the public safety committees in the legislature and the labor and public employees committee. And um, that what they have been is to cover, um, uh, we started with uh, firefighters and uh, police officers to get covered for post-traumatic stress uh, in, um, uh, and get the treatment necessary, uh, which I believe sometimes is not just a result of a traumatic in- in- incident like the Newtown incident, but the daily sort of drip, drip, drip of uh, of issues that have happened because uh, of the constant pressure of the job. And so what we're trying to do is get post-traumatic stress covered like any other work-related injury under workers' compensation. And we narrowly defined it uh, so it, uh, it would uh, first uh, take care of workers who, first responders who were seeing the death of an individual at the hands of another individual. And so that's what we've been trying to do. And uh, each year we get fought uh, based on the, uh, what um, the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities determines as the cost of the program. But that's really a boondoggle because, quite frankly, the cost is just not there. This is uh, something that uh, would only be, according to national statistics, a half a percent of workers' compensation cases 
and only 2.5% of the total worker, workers' compensation costs. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's something that I think we should do. It's something that I think is necessary to do, and it's something that uh, each year um, I fight for uh, to make sure that we're providing workers who we count on to be that consummate professional all the time uh, the resources to remain that consummate professional. So uh, municipalities uh, believe this would be a costly, unfunded mandate, and they think the state should uh, be required to pick up some of the bill. Is that possible, Senator Austin? Uh, Well, the state does give a lot of financial resources to municipalities, and I believe that under the workers' compensation, PERMA, which is also uh, one of the financial arms of the Connecticut Conference of uh, Municipalities, that's where they get their money from is from the insurance that they sell to municipalities should be able to pick up the cost. Again, half a percent of the workers' compensation costs and two and a half percent of the total cost. And we have put uh, into a bill that, that I sponsored that decreased workers' compensation costs in Connecticut double digits over the last, um, over the last four years. Uh, so... We have been providing them with financial uh, 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 incentives to cover other costs of workers uh, at a far lower level than the savings that we have already given them. I'm going to thank uh, Senator Kathy Austin for joining us to talk about uh, her efforts to to get this kind of legislation passed uh, within the state of Connecticut. I wanted to ask Michael Kehoe uh, for your response uh, to what the senator has proposed, because uh, uh, we know through reports that there was even an officer in Newtown that couldn't go back to work, and there was a fight between the town about how much they Mm -hmm. could offer him in terms of disability. Right. And first of all, I want to thank uh, Senator for doing all the work that she does at the Capitol. I know this is a very difficult uh, con- conversation that has to be taken up up, up there. And, there's, and certainly the state is in, you know, has financial resource issues. So we, we appreciate that. Um, indeed, uh, we, need to, we need to start to push the needle. I think with the right checks and balances uh, in place and, and, and what you know, the senator said about the cost, I think if you can assure that, uh, that that sometime in the future will be a, a law and I think that will be addressed, you know, uh, in the future. So, I, you know, I think that uh, we need it. We, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and, we have, and again, sometimes things don't happen very quickly, quickly at the legislature that we, we all think we need. Uh, for a variety of different reasons, but uh, those efforts continue to go on. I'm sure they will go on for the next uh, few years. We'll have to leave it there. Michael Kehoe, again, is retired police chief of the Newtown Police Department, uh, working towards uh, trying to raise more awareness about the importance of mental health services uh, to uh, first responders. Michael, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue this conversation with uh, Megan Berthold, associate professor at UConn School of Social Work, and we're going to learn more about uh, uh, the DART Center at Columbia Journalism School, which focuses on this issue of how journalists should cover traumatic events and how they should respond to trauma that they're also witnessing. That's right after the break. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired September 25th, 2018. 
here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning about secondary trauma, and my next guest is actually the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism Trauma, a project of the Columbia Journalism School. We wanted to learn more about the work being done there. Bruce, uh, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Lucy. And you're joining us from a studio at Columbia University. I understand you were a practicing journalist for many years, but tell us about this, uh, uh, when DART and your colleagues first started thinking about this relationship between journalism and trauma. Well, you know, back in the 1990s, there were a number of us around the country, some of us journalists, some clinicians, some uh, journalism teachers, um, who in various ways and for various reasons all realized there was a huge gap, a tremendous amount of what counts as news involves the worst things that happen to people, uh, hurricanes and murders and wars and Uh, refugee issues and torture, all of these things are important, big disruptions in the social fabric. They all represent legitimate, important news. And yet as journalists, in our toolkit, we we really had um, kind of very little training and very little preparation for interviewing, encountering, narrating the lives of people dealing with issues like post-traumatic stress disorder, dealing with the complicated uh, political and moral nature of victimization. So we, we started drawing those lessons together, uh, found a donor, the um, wonderful family named Dart, who continued to support our work, um, and, and, and began this work. And, but as we did so, we swiftly came to the conclusion that not only did we, was there a vacuum around uh, how we report on survivors of violence, but also a big gap in what we know about how journalists ourselves are affected. I mean, for myself, I the very first news story I ever covered involved the untimely death of a young woman in my neighborhood in Chicago about my own age within a few years of being a very an ordinary community reporter on an ordinary beat. I had interviewed Vietnam veterans, Cambodian refugees, Holocaust survivors, had covered a bridge collapse on I-95, all kinds of tragic events that are just part of the normal work of being a journalist. Um, This is a big load. And so we began to sponsor some research working with clinicians and researchers, and then develop training um, for newsrooms on both branches of this, both how to report on the aftermath of tragedy and also what how journalists can stay resilient, be effective witnesses, whether it's in frontline coverage or through deep immersion into issues like, you know, sexual abuse that we saw with the spotlight store in the Boston Globe. Uh, this week's uh, reporting on Judge Kavanaugh, all of this um, criminal trials, murder trials, all of this involves a heavy dose of pretty terrible experience. And, and we got to deal with that as a profession. Uh, when the DART Center was first starting out back in the uh, 90s, uh, there wasn't Twitter and Facebook uh, to, to add uh, to the load of, of how we, uh, you know, collect and disseminate information and what the audience is seeing. So I'm curious if you could talk more about the role of technology, again, with when we're talking about uh, violent events and how we should be reporting and covering them. 
Sure. Well, first of all, of course, Twitter and Facebook and social media generally speed everything up and give us all a whole lot more information. And it doesn't matter there whether you're covering um, international affairs or a community tragedy. What comes at you through Twitter greatly accelerates the kind of amount of imagery, the amount of information you have available. Um, and actually, we saw this, you know, with Sandy Hook, which it should be said for those of my friends who are Connecticut journalists, they were, they not only had to cover a breaking story with information needing to be sorted through through social media, but needed to deal with loss in their own community. The, the uh, parents of one of the teachers who was killed were both Connecticut journalists. So this, you know, social media that connects us also implicates journalists even more deeply. But more important or more widespread than that, what social media has changed, especially in the last two years, I would say, is is given us a flood of user-generated content, often involving very graphic imagery. Think of police shooting video, the Philando Castile story, um, disaster coverage from her, video from Hurricane Maria, uh, beheading video from Syria. And in newsrooms all over the world, not only are journals having to make editorial choices about whether to post this stuff or not, but we're having to do what the public never sees, which is examine it closely, verify it, um, spend time deciding whether stuff is newsworthy. And this means that many, many hands are touching toxic imagery in newsrooms and, and you know, 22-year-olds who most of the day are verifying cute cat videos suddenly have to verify a massacre. Um, that's pretty awful. And it's causing a lot of news organizations to examine their practices and to take this issue of vicarious trauma, which Megan Berthold was talking about, um, to take it really seriously. The brain does not distinguish always between real threats out in the world and a steady diet of toxic imagery. And we as a profession are just coming to grips with that now. Bruce Shapiro is executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project of the Columbia Journalism uh, School. Joining us uh, from the studios at Columbia, I want to take a, a quick call. Uh, Marianne's calling from Sandy Hook. Marianne, go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Marianne Jacob. I'm a survivor from Sandy Hook School, and I work as a uh, fellow for Every Town for Gun Safety. And I was very interested in the conversation about journalistic responsibility. I just spoke to another journalist about that yesterday, in fact, and you know how coverage of these events often um, uh, further traumatizes the victims and and those um, victims' families, and and doesn't and and also glorifies the perpetrator of the crime in many ways. And Marianne, um, because you said that you're from Sandy Hook and, and as a survivor of, of what that of what happened there, um, what would you like to see change? Well, I'd like to um, see in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy like this that, you know, so many of the journalists I spoke to in the immediate aftermath, they almost felt guilty, like having the conversations and, and some literally said things like, yeah, my boss said I have to be here. And people followed me home and knocked on my door in the hours and days following the tragedy. And, and you know, I think maybe taking a step back and talking about um, using that responsibility to report in a way that allows them to talk about um, prevention and and other things that are important to the conversation instead of, you know, you know, let's bring you into the home of a survivor and, you know, hear their terrible story, which really just further magnifies 
um, some of that trauma. Well, Marianne, thank you for your comments. I wanted to have uh, Bruce Shapiro respond uh, to what Marianne was saying. Bruce, we only have a couple of minutes, but go ahead. Well, first of all, thank you, Marianne. I mean, this is the conversation we, we need to promote and that the DART Center exists to promote. I would say that journalists in the aftermath of, of, of a horrible tragedy like Sandy Hook face a complicated set of responsibilities. Um, we do need to engage the rest of the world in what is happening. And the reality is that I think we have the ability when we do our job right to bear witness for families who have endured terrible losses, for individuals who have uh, borne great suffering. Um, We try to promote best practices and balance what are often very difficult, conflicting ethical responsibilities, getting as much information out there as quickly as possible so the public understands the degree of what's happening and how to calibrate response, and at the same time, being respectful of survivors and the needs of folks to to heal. This is a big challenge, and it's it's a conversation that is very active within um, the journalism community. Bruce Shapiro, again, is executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. Bruce, thank you for joining us. Uh, Obviously, we could talk about this a lot um, longer, but we appreciate the time you've given us. Glad to be here. Uh, Megan uh, Berthold's been in studio with me, associate professor at UConn School of Social Work. We've got under a minute when we talk about these different professions. uh, Resiliency comes in many different packages. It doesn't one size fit all for very many uh, different professions that are out there. Yes, some professions have more of an opportunity to not only hear about the trauma events, but also to hear about and empathically engage with the resilience and strength of the survivors. And that can be a very uh, strong protective factor in the well-being of first responders, clinicians, journalists, etc. Thank you. Well, thank you, Megan, uh, for coming in today. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff and, and our uh, WNPR intern who was at the phones today, Philip Geolopsis. Also, thanks to uh, Lydia Brown and our technical producer, Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.